And let's pray before we look at 1 Timothy 3, the opening verses here together. Father, we are thankful this morning that we come not to a dead word, to a living word, very unlike any other book, unlike any other words that have ever been written down. These breathed out by You. These living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that we would receive them like that this morning. We would hear what it is that You want to instruct us in. What You want to teach us. And we would find that You are instructing us from heaven. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. You've seen it. And so have I. The church can be destroyed by one elder's failings. Whether that is in teaching errant things, or whether that is a failing morally, or whether that is sowing disunity in the congregation. You've also equally seen, though, that it is true for a church can be stimulated to godliness by one thriving elder who stands upon truth, who shows love for Christ and models love for brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, it's essential that men who occupy the office of elder in the church are to be men who adorn the gospel with their lives. 
It is that they look like what they preach and what they teach and what they instruct and what they say is to be modeled before a congregation. Nothing, and I mean nothing, destroys a church quicker than ungodly men in its home. And nothing, nothing, makes a church more blessed than to have godly men leading it. When it starts here, Paul is ordering the church, as we've seen in previous weeks. He has ordered it in different ways, and now he gets to the ordering of the offices that are within the church. And he makes it very clear, this is our first point, that the church needs leaders. It needs leaders, or more particularly, it needs officers. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish Presbyterian of the 1600s, he noted the necessity of officers can be seen from the way that the writers of the New Testament use different words to speak of elders in the church. You see here in our passage, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul calls them overseers. He will use that same term in Acts 20 as he meets the elders on the beach there, and he will call them overseers. They are called stewards of the mysteries of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. They're called shepherds in 1 Peter 5. They're called ambassadors that are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. They are preachers who are sent to proclaim the good news of Christ in Romans 10, verse 14. And they are teachers of the deep things of God in Galatians 6, 6. They are to be planters and builders according to Mark 4 and to Ephesians 4. And if we take all of these metaphorical expressions together, Samuel Rutherford says the entire point is that they are indispensable. That is, that they're needed. You see this necessity as well, just in the labors of the apostles in the New Testament. You see that they will appoint elders in locations like in Acts 14. You will see that Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and in Titus 1, Titus 1, he will instruct both Timothy and Titus to appoint godly men to the office of elder. We see that New Testament elders are charged with upholding their office in Colossians 4.17 and 1 Peter 5 verses 1-3, through while the New Testament also will exhort congregations to encourage, to support, and to obey their leaders in Galatians 6.6, 1 Timothy 5.18, and Hebrews 13.17, let alone other passages. As Rutherford noted, and he's looking at all of this together, And he said this, he said, the office of elder is necessary to the good and interests of the church. He said, if they be not necessary, that is, elders in the church, why should there lie upon them so severe a charge, and why should there be due unto them so great a respect, as we see instructed in the Scriptures? And he's right. They're necessary. Elders are necessary. Second, let us see that the desire to be an elder is a good aspiration. 
In fact, Paul says here in 1 Timothy 3, at the very opening, he says, it's a noble desire. It's a right thing for a man to desire to be an elder in the church of God. We need more men who rightly have this holy desire. But only if one understands what it is that an officer is to be, and they are motivated by the right things to be an elder. often, till men in our different leadership classes that we have it here at URC, I'll often tell them if they are in that class because they want to be an elder in the church so that they have some say in how the church is run or so that they can shape vision or so that they can bring a certain perspective to the table or so that they can have a seat at the table, then they're in the wrong room. That's not why you seek to be a leader in the church. Leaders in the church seek to be servants. But to lord it over others, they seek to serve Christ and they seek to serve His bride. They understand that it's service rather than control. It is loving rather than domineering. And, and that's a right desire. That's a right motivation. Third, what is this office of elder? What is an elder? Well, Paul calls them an overseer here in verse 2. Overseers is the word that we get bishop from. It's also the word that we get pastor from. It's the word episkopos in the Greek. You know that word in the back of your mind because you hear episcopalian there. right? Just bishop rule. Episkopos, bishop. It's interchangeable with the word presbyteros or presbyterian or elder in the Scriptures. We see this in a number of passages. We will see it here in First Timothy as we go on. These same people that he calls overseers here, he will call elders or presbyteroi later in this book. We see it in First Peter 5. We see it in Titus 1. An elder is an overseer. An overseer is an elder. An overseer of what? Well, of lives. They're overseers of lives. Or as Paul says in verse 5, they are to care for the church. Care for the people of God. And how are they to care for the people of God? They are to teach and they are to rule. That's how they care. They teach and they rule. Throughout the New Testament, we see that God established the spiritual authority in the church and He did it by implementing this system of elders that are ruling over the people of God, instructing the people of God. And it's always a plurality. It's a plurality of men that come together to, to rule and to lead. It's a body of men that have been ordained for this purpose. Within our polity, here in Presbyterian world, we understand that there is just one office of elder, but in our polity there are two different orders within this one office. We base that upon 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and other passages in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul will say this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
One office, elder. Two different orders. There are teaching elders. Pastor Kevin and myself are teaching elders. We have been ordained to a vocational office of preaching the Word and administering the sacraments. There is also, there are ruling elders. There are ruling elders. Dave Hinckley and Kevin McKelvey and Jeff McKelvey and Evan Vanderway and Zane Mybuyer and others in this room. Chip Kogan and Steve Roscos and Nick Setterington. I'm sure I've missed a couple in this room. The ruling elders. They were ordained not to vocationally preaching the Word and ministering the sacraments, but to, to rule in the church. And we do this as the spiritual authorities in the church together. One office, that of elder. Elders are to oversee, to rule and teach and But they do this not for self-gain, but always for the benefit of those they serve and for the glory of Christ. Paul will say that he is happy, he is content, he will say at one point, to see his life poured out as a drink offering for the sake of others. The drink offering was the most menial of sacrifices. He's willing to see his life poured out. He's willing to expend himself. Not for his glory, not for his benefit, but for the benefit of those that he was called to serve. And for the glory of Christ. Every man who has been called must have this internal desire, as Paul speaks about it here, this desire to be an elder. Now, Many men have such a desire reluctantly. Most wise men that I've known through the years that have been called to the office of elder come to it reluctantly because they know what it entails and they know the burden that will be upon their shoulders. But they have this internal sense that the Lord has called me. And so they come with trembling and they come in fear. But they come because they have this internal sense. But that internal sense isn't enough because you could just have that burning because you had Mexican food last night. And so, we call it a threefold call. There's a threefold call upon an elder's life. That internal sense of calling isn't enough. There also has to be that second call upon his life, what our book of church order will call the manifest approbation of God's people. That is, the manifest, the voluminous approval of God's people. That this man, we see the calling upon his life. That is, we've benefited from His gifts. We've seen His life. And as we've observed His life up close, we also believe that He's been called to service in the office of elder. And you do that. We do that here at URC by having a congregational vote on who you approve as your elders and call as your elders. But that's not enough. It can't just be that internal sense of call. That could be Mexican from last night. It can't just be manifest approbation of God's people because your mama thinking you have gifts isn't enough. It also requires, third, the calling of a church court. 
or a court of the church, other godly men that have been ordained say, you know what, not only do you have this heartburn, not only do the people of God see that you have these gifts, but we are coming alongside of you as men who have been ordained to this office, and we agree. You've indeed been called. And so that happens for ruling elders here is our session, our elders, vet candidates, and it happens for teaching elders, for pastors as our presbytery vets. Threefold call to the office of elder. I often remind our nominations committee that it is not their job to call a man to the office of elder. That is never the job. Rather, it's simply to identify those whom God has already called. It's God that calls the man, that gives that internal sense, that gives them the sight before God's people, and that gives them the call through the church court. And all that we do, all we do is identify it. It's God's call upon a man. Now that leads to the longest part of this passage. That leads to Paul's therefore. Therefore, fourth, what is a man with such a call in his life supposed to look like? It's going to take a little bit. We're going to spend time just going through every single one of these things because it's important. Because you yearly are calling men, identifying men that God has called to the office of elder here. So you need to know what you're looking for. You need to know how to identify them. I'm going to group a few of these together. So we're going to go through nine of them this morning as we work our way through this passage. The first is that Paul mentions that a man that is called to this office must be, quote, above reproach. And that seems to be an overarching characteristic that Paul is bringing to bear that says, look, this is the overarching one that governs all the rest that follow. He is to be above reproach. Now, that does not mean that the man must be perfect because there is no man that is perfect. But rather what Paul is saying, that his observable behavior, what you see of him from the outside, it is to be irreproachable. You shouldn't be able to lay something at his door. You see, the church doesn't just need elders. It needs godly elders. If you and I were to go through this list, which we're going to do, you'll see that there's only one thing in this entire list that is an ability, that is a gift. All the rest could be summed up in one word. Character. His character is what matters. Character in ministry is not simply one thing among many. It is the thing. Character is everything in church leadership. Why? Because our leading, our teaching can be undone by our living. So we're looking for men of character. The elder must be above reproach. Second, he is to be the husband of one wife. This caused no little amount of ink to be spilled over the years in Christendom, what does Paul mean by this? The husband of one wife. Some have said, well, it means that a man must be married. You can't have an unmarried man that becomes an elder, but I don't think that is the case. It wouldn't have been true for Paul. It wouldn't have been true. Timothy is clearly occupying the place of an elder, the office of an elder, and he doesn't appear to 
be a married man as we see him here. Others have argued that it prohibits remarriage, that is, if a man was divorced or if a man was widowed, that he can't be remarried and become an elder. But that would be at odds with Paul's teaching in other places like 1 Corinthians 7 where he speaks about a man that is the offended party in a divorce, that he is free to remarry, or a man that has been widowed, that he is free to remarry. That wouldn't make sense. I think, as most scholars and pastors have through the ages, that what Paul is emphasizing here is that an elder is to be, maybe to put it in our vernacular, he is to be a one-woman kind of man. That is, that his sexual ethics are to be controlled and right and above reproach. He is not one who indulges in sexual temptation. He's not entertaining other women inappropriately. And maybe in our context today, especially in our context today, he is not a man that indulges in pornography. A man of high sexual ethics. Third, verse 2, he is to be sober-minded. He is to be self-controlled. He is to be respectable. That is, he is to be a man who is not driven by his passions. He's sober-minded, making good decisions, wise decisions. He is self-controlled. That is, he's guarding his desires. He's respectable, meaning that he is well-mannered. Men who are driven by their passions. Or if I can say it, men who are driven by their wives' passions. I have found to be the most disruptive elders you will ever find in a church and can destroy a church. Not a man driven by passion. Fourth, He's to be hospitable. And we know that all Christians are to be hospitable. It's like all the virtues in this list. You could take all the virtues in this list and you could say, ah, how are these qualifications? Every Christian is asked to do these things. You're exactly right. It's that the elder is to manifest these things in his life to a degree that is noticeable. He's marked by these things. Hospitality is one of those things. Why hospitality? Because it demonstrates tangible love for others. This was so desperately needed in the early church, especially because in the early church you didn't have hotels and motels like we would today. You wouldn't have all kinds of safe places for people to stop and to take up residence, whether that was someone that was visiting an area or whether that was a traveling missionary or evangelist through the area. And so the church was to have, as it were, an open front door that when people encountered the church, they found it to be a hospitable place. I often pray this for us. That when visitors walk through those doors on Sunday mornings, that they find this body to be hospitable. That you can't walk through those doors and remain a visitor in this building. That you walk in and you feel loved. And so it was to mark, especially the church in the first century, even as it's to mark us today. And so it was especially to mark the church leaders. Why? Because we are the family of God. We are the household of God. And as the family of God, the household of God, we welcome people into our midst. 
pretty easy, right? Maybe you invite somebody over for dinner at your house and a little conversation. And there's just something about that. It's just... I've often thought that I think the great apologetic in our day is probably going to be hospitality. As you open that front door and you let somebody in, you sit around a meal, and when love is brought to bear, it just opens the way for truth. Especially in a culture that is more and more anti-Christian. It just opens the way for truth. There's so many that want to wield the sword of truth and they don't understand that you do it by the spirit of love. Hospitality is one of the easiest ways to do that. Sixth, he is to be marked by restraint. Verse 3, that is not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That is, he's restrained from worldliness. He's not drawn to strong drink. He's restrained. He's not drawn to strong action. He's restrained. He's not drawn to strong disputes. He's restrained. He's not drawn to the strong pull of money. He's restrained. Leaders in the world are drawn to all of these things, but leaders in the church cannot be drawn to these things. Elders must be men of restraint. Maybe the oddest to hear in this passage, is that he is to be gentle, not violent. Phil Riken said rightfully about that, he said, the true strength of a man lies in gentleness. Of course, an elder must be firm when he rebukes sin. When overseers lack the courage to confront, the church loses its conviction. But an elder must be gentle. He must live among God's people like a tender shepherd. He must be sympathetic with the weak and compassionate to the wounded. And that's right. A long time ago, I remember sitting in a presbytery, presbytery meeting. Presbytery is just the ruling elders and teaching elders of a given geographic region. And I was sitting in that meeting and one pastor stood up, a teaching elder stood up, and he mocked another teaching elder pastor in that presbytery in front of all the rest of the men on the floor of presbytery. And he mocked him. He said, this man doesn't know what he's doing as a pastor because he has this man. And he mentioned a man by name. He's got this man in his congregation. And this man is a leader And he hasn't allowed that man to be ordained as an elder yet in his congregation. What that accusing pastor didn't know from a distance was that he's right, that man was a leader. But what the accused pastor knew was that man is not the kind of leader the church needs. He was quarrelsome. He was violent, not gentle. That man had, at one point with his pastor, walked out of church on Sunday and red-faced and towering over his pastor, pointing his finger in front of his face, threatened him in front of his family. 
Pastor Rue accused Pastor New as he sat there and was being accused in that presbytery meeting that this man had sat for months in the second row of his congregation and he had sat there with his huge frame unfolded in the seat with his legs crossed and his arms crossed and shaking his head violently as a show for everybody else in the congregation with everything he disagreed with his pastor about. And that was everything. He was a leader. No doubt about it, he was a leader. But he was not a leader for the church. Not violent, but gentle. Men must have opinions. They can disagree. But one such quarrelsome man on an elder board, a session can derail an entire church. And thus the warning. Seventh, verse 5, he must manage his own household well. This is so very important. In some ways, every elder learns about being an elder by being on the job. But in another way, what Paul is pointing out is an elder is prepared as he manages his own household. That is, that as he learns to lead in his own home, that as he learns to bear authority in his own home, that as he disciples and teaches and instructs and models in his own home, that it prepares him for the office of an elder. How can he manage all the household of God if he can't manage his own house, is Paul's question. He can't. It is so much more complex to manage the whole household of God than to manage your own house. So he says, this man must keep his children submissive. What does that mean? It's not the idea of subjugating. Rather, that there is respect in his home. His children respect him because he has brought truth and he has brought grace to bear in his home. His children respect him because they know that what he teaches, what he says with his mouth, he does in his living. They respect him. They honor him because he's a man of character. And he gives firm, solid, strong leadership while being gentle. He's the authority in his home. And when he becomes an elder, he knows that it's just simply the number of his children have multiplied. He now has all kinds of spiritual children in addition to those he's been caring for in his home. Eighth, he must not be a recent convert Elders need experience. There's danger. Otherwise, Paul tells us, he might become puffed up. That is, he might become proud. And those who are puffed up fall from their heady heights. They fall, he says, into the condemnation of the devil. And what's the condemnation of the devil? He was a proud man. And because Lucifer was a proud man, he fell and he was condemned by God. Spiritual maturity matters. Spiritual age matters. I was uh, I emailed Nick Sutterington. He and I were having a conversation this week. And I was saying, Nick, has the missions committee considered supporting this certain missionary that has been asking from outside of our church whether we would support him? 
And Nick wrote back and he said, yeah, Jason, we have considered it as a missions committee. And someone on the missions committee said, you know what, let's let him get his hands dirty a little bit first. That's wise. That was good. What, what do they mean? It's just too pristine. It's too new. He's too idealistic. He hasn't been in the muck and the mire enough yet. He, he hasn't suffered yet. So let's let him be tested. Let's see. That's Paul's point. He will say later, do not lay hands on a man too quickly. Finally, verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders. That is, what is their observable behavior? The concern here in Paul's mind is the mission of the church. We have a mission before us. We don't simply exist for ourselves. We exist for those that are outside the church. We have a mission to reach them with the Gospel. And there's a snare here, Paul is warning us and telling us. A snare that the devil sets up. It's a snare that he loves to employ and he employs over and over again. What does he do? He sets before the world ungodly church leaders. This is what they see with their eyes. And so what happens? They close their ears to the proclamation of the Gospel. Paul's saying, don't let that happen. We have a message to proclaim that the Savior who came into the world to die for sinners, and there are sinners that are seriously dying to hear that news. He's saying, don't close their ears by putting before their eyes ungodly men leading your church. John Chrysostom, the early church father, made this point about the apostles. He said they were slandered as deceivers and impostors on account of their preaching. And this because they could not attack their moral characters and lives. For why did not one say of the apostles that they were fornicators, unclean or covetous persons, but that they were deceivers, which relates to preaching only? Must it not be that their lives were irreproachable? Look, let the world have a lot to say about us by what we say. Let them be offended by what we say. But they're not to be offended by our morality and how we live. Well thought of by outsiders. My heroes, Samuel Miller, a pastor and professor at Princeton in the 1800s, a man who exemplified most every virtue in this list. On his death, a fellow pastor said this about him. He, he said he possessed the happy art of making religion appear lovely even to those who had never learned to love it. And for more leaders like that in the church. For the kingdom to prosper on earth as it is in heaven, it requires godly men who not only describe Christ, who can not only debate the doctrines of Christ, but men who delight in Christ. And who so delight in Christ that Christ shapes their living 
It's unmistakable the way they live because they are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. They exhibit the fruit of Christ. They manifest the love and the truth of Christ. Samuel Miller once said, there is power in consistent holiness which belongs to nothing else beneath the throne of God. Those who know Christ and pursue Christ are those who are the best guides to Christ. Just a few applications, if you will, here at the very end with me. Let me give you just five quick applications. First is this. Is that some of you men in this room you need to have this holy desire. You need to be seeking this holy desire. We need godly men stepping up to the plate and getting involved in the eternal work of shepherding God's people. You need to have this holy desire. Second, Dear congregation, Christians, when you are nominating people for the office of elder, it is not a popularity contest. You are not seeking to represent some, se- some segment of the congregation or some certain agenda. That's not what you're looking for. What you are looking for is men of character. You are looking for men that meet these qualifications. Men that it's recognizable they're already doing the work of an elder. Because they already have the call upon their life. They already looked the part of an elder because they already have the call of God upon their life. And all you're doing is identifying it. You're just recognizing it. And so those are the men that you're calling. Third, You and I are to be praying for such men. This is one of your duties. This is one of my duties. You are to be praying that God would raise up such men in our midst. If you're not praying that, you're doing damage to your own soul. You want godly men looking over your soul. You should be praying for it. And the men that have been called to that, you should be praying for them. And you should be praying for their families. Fourth, you're in the congregation. You're to submit and obey and respect your leaders. At the end of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews will say that you are to honor them as those who must give an account before Christ. It's easy to submit and it's easy to respect and it's easy to honor when you agree. There's no need for such a command. If we agree about everything, then you don't need to respect. You don't need to honor. You don't need to submit. 
It truly gets tested when you don't agree, when you disagree. And it is the charge of the congregation you are to respect and you are to honor and you are to submit to your elders. I have been in a number of churches, and I don't say this as blowing smoke, I don't say this as flattery. I have never been around a better group of elders in my life. I've never seen it in any church like we enjoy it here. You have men that love you. You have men that understand the charge that has been placed upon their life, the call. You have men that sacrifice incredible amounts of time, incredible amounts of energy, who go through sleepless nights because of the burden that is on their shoulders, who are wading into things that you couldn't even imagine happening within the church, and doing it all out of love for you and for their Savior. They're worthy of your honor. They're worthy of your respect. I do think, thought a lot about this over the last couple of years, as we've gone through everything that we've been through the last two and a half years, and I thought, one of the great blessings, the Lord has kept us together as a church. We, we have, oh my goodness, everything we've been through, there have been disparate views across the spectrum in this church, and passionate views. And yet, by God's grace, this has been kept together. And I attribute it to two things, humanly speaking. It's that one, it's been your respect and honor and submission to your elders. On the whole, you've done it well. And the other is, is that you have elders that truly care for every single sheep of the flock. Not just caring about one part, but caring for every single sheep in the flock. Because they know, they understand what the writer of Hebrews says, that on that last day, every single one of us, myself, Pastor Kevin, Evan Vanderway, Dan Lorman, saw somebody miss over here earlier, Scott Lawton, Brad Bruss, Peter Lucas, Jeff McKelvey, we will stand before the throne of Christ and we will have to give an account for every single one of you. Not generally, but every single one of you. How we instructed you, how we formed you, how we prayed for you, how we modeled Christ before you, how we safeguarded you, how we disciplined you, how we encouraged you, how we exhorted you. We will stand before our King, the great shepherd of the sheep, and will be responsible for every single one of your souls. And these men take that seriously. I love you. Say, so, well, who is sufficient for these things? That's what the Apostle Paul said. He got to that point thinking about all this. He said, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is, no one. But you see, Christ is the great shepherd. 
And so he calls and he equips his servants, you elders, where you are weak, he is strong. And he sustains you as he seeks to care for his sheep through you. He is the great shepherd of the sheep, and he has bled and died for every one of them and will lose none of them. And so we just go busy about the work. Let me just close with this. One of the things we do here at URC is we purposely try and raise up such men in our midst. We don't just pray for it. We labor towards it. We do this through BTF, through PMT, our leadership training classes, through growth groups. I have asked every elder to be discipling at least two men that they believe could be future officers here at URC. We're seeking to raise up within. We also understand that it's one of the great gifts that we can give to the church outside of us. And I love that you have been supportive of this and have surrounded and gotten involved in this where we are seeking to raise up men that we can send out of this church as pastoral interns and fellows to serve as hopefully men of character, men that love the Lord Jesus, love His people, love His Word, and will stand upon those things. And this is one of the great ways we can bless the church. I love that a couple of weeks ago when Matt Umkis, our pastoral intern, was preaching the Sunday evening service, that more of you showed up to listen to him preach than you do to listen to me preach. I love that. I love that you are welcoming them into your homes, that we are doing this together, that you are praying for them, that we're doing this together, that you are getting to know them in the hallways, that we're doing this together, that you are sitting under their teaching and preaching, that we're doing this together. That you understand that we are setting to model before them a church that is committed to the Word and committed to prayer and committed to discipleship and committed to evangelism and committed to welcoming the stranger and committed to reaching the ends of the earth together. And you're modeling that before them in unity and love and truth. I love that we do this together because it's one of the greatest ways that we can bless the church together outside of us. The church needs godly men at its helm. Let's pray for it. Let's seek it. Let's labor for it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your exceeding kindness. Oh, we would be fools if we did not thank You for the men that You have called to the office of elder here over the five plus decades at URC. Men that have held the line. That have loved the people of Christ. Men that have worn out their knees in prayer. Who've had sleepless nights been willing to have hard conversations, who've been willing to love to the point of hurting. We pray that you would continue to safeguard our leadership. We pray that there would be no puffing up. We pray that there would be no moral failure, no teaching failure, no ethical failure. 
And we pray that you will continue to bless us with godly men. It will lead this congregation not just for the next decades, but for generations to come. That you might receive all the glory and all the praise. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.